The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, December 8th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Certain American presidents find kindred spirits once in office, other heads of state, and often they're from places you wouldn't expect. Sometimes they are. FDR bonded with Churchill. But Bill Clinton was said to have a real affection for Vaclav Havel. It is now clear who incoming President Donald Trump's mini-me will be. Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines, whose tenure has been marked by almost indiscriminate state-sponsored killing of anyone even accused of drug use. But more to the point of the Duterte-Trump relationship, uh, Duterte once called Barack Obama the son of a whore. That's the kind of plain talk the president-elect likes, as judged by nothing less then Duterte himself, speaking of a phone call that he shared with Mr. Trump, here's Duterte in English relaying what Trump told him. You're doing good. Go ahead. I had this problem in, in, the, in the border of Mexico and America and this goddamn shit guy. Not sure what the goddamn shit guy was, but Duterte kept channeling the president as he went on, this time acting out both sides of the conversation. No media supported me and I did it on my own. Yes. That's why I'm very impressed with you, Mr. President. Oh, yes. When you come to Washington, D.C. or New York City, look me up and I will have coffee. Maybe you can give me a suggestion, one or two, how to solve this goddamn bullshit. You're a son of a bitch. Let's hope that summit happens. The goddamn bullshit accords. Neville Chamberlain promised peace in our time. The Kellogg-Briand Pact assured us the end of war. Yet we got wars anyway. So maybe we just need to settle for the goddamn bullshit accords. That is a treatise that both sides can live up to. On the show today, I spiel about the makeup of Trump's cabinet, demographics you may not have considered. But first, Jeff Chang, he's written about Ferguson. He lived in Ferguson for a while. He writes about social justice in the United States. And in this conversation, we mentioned, among other things, a fatal shooting in Milwaukee that happened over the summer, the bombing of the Chelsea neighborhood of New York, and just in general, the state of policing in America. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak 
that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When our pride was low, looking at the world like, where do we go? Nigga, and we hate poor poor, wanna kill us dead in the street for sure. Nigga, I'm at the preacher's door, my knees getting weak and my gun might blow, but we gonna be alright. Right, Nigga, we gonna be alright. In his new collection of essays called We Gonna Be Alright, Jeff Chang takes on what's going on now in America, with race in America, with justice in America. What sparked it, like what sparked so many things, was Ferguson. Jeff Chang is a journalist and music critic, and his 2005 book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, is widely regarded as the greatest, perhaps up to that point, the greatest chronicle of American hip-hop ever put to paper. Hello, Jeff. How are you? I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, Mike. <laughs> I'm really not. Well, it's been, it's been 11 <laughs> years since that book, yeah, right? Yeah, it's been out since yeah. 2005. That's right, yeah. And it's sort of, I think hip-hop might be like... Um, like evolution, which, you know, things happen suddenly and then all at once. In those 11 years, things have changed and multiplied quite a bit. Dramatically. Yeah. yeah Hip hop's a much different thing than it was back in 2005. There was a lot of complaints about rappers not speaking to the moment at mm-hmm. that particular point, right? Like not speaking to the war. Where's, not the, rev- to where's the relevance? Justice, where's the, yeah, right. All these and, kinds of things. Yeah. And invoking their forebearers. And the same exact thing was happening with sports mm-hmm. and now we're seeing the exact opposite right and as much <laughs> i don't know if it made us comfortable or uncomfortable in the mid aughts that they weren't doing it but man is it a flashpoint now that they are yeah yeah absolutely just we're in a moment now of of wokeness for sure right? yeah amongst artists i mean there's been i feel like there's been an explosion of amazing work in the last two years um and that's i think because artists have been in dialogue with the movement for black lives and I think that all these seeds are germinating in the culture right now that have been planted actually for, for years upon years, you know, going back to De La, Public Enemy, you know, all well, these types of folks. Back then or before the flashpoint of Ferguson, which encapsulated the phenomenon of finally documenting the violence against mostly black men, documenting what's and been going yeah, yeah, and absolutely. women. But the the flashpoints, the killing of black men by police officers, always known, I think, to anyone paid attention, just wasn't always seen. And to me, hip-hop, it's concrete, right? It's less abstract than, say, folk singing. And I don't know too many great hip-hop songs about maybe the system overall. And when it is about the system, the great lyrics are about specific things going on, right? Like the message, but then they ground it in something actually tangible. So I do think that it's one thing we could wonder, hey, why wasn't hip hop saying stuff about the Iraq war? We talked about it that they were. Why weren't they talking about, I don't know, Occupy Wall Street? But once it's really concrete in video form, that's a ripe thing for hip hop to talk about. Well, I, I would say that I, I a little bit disagree with you on on this kind of thing. I think that hip-hop's been really abstract. You can look at all of Daylight's work right. pretty much, right? And you could talk about, like, say, Nas's uh, record, I Gave You Power, you know? Um, you could talk about all of these different types of, of, of records where there is sort of an abstract sense. It's not like it's always been... Um, I'll, I'll put it like this. I feel like we interpret hip-hop through the lens of realism, 
right? And and that's, that's what I was of, doing with that question. Yeah, that and I think that and I think that hip hop has been a lot more than just realism, and we can talk about the get down too if yeah. you want to go there too. But I do think that what we see happening with the rise of technology, right, is is the ability to be able to distribute the stuff one-to-one, peer-to-peer in ways that that are movement building, actually, that, that allow for all of these discussions to be able to happen. Remember, like, Chuck used to say that rap was the black CNN? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, hip-hop continues to be that, and now it's supplemented by this visual type of format, right? That we don't have to go to Viacom to get onto the air. Like, we could just get on Twitter, and there it is, right? Right. Rap was the black CNN. Now Twitter is the black Twitter. Right. Because everyone gets to own their own and use and define their own technology. Do you think without the protests, we'd have body cameras in, you know, I could list the major municipalities now that are, that are going to adopt them. The protests caused them or elected officials of goodwill said this is just the right thing to do. Oh, no, it had to be. It had to have been movements. I mean, didn't the New York Police Department say they're starting to put cameras now in the police vehicles mm-hmm. and vans. Mm-hmm. And then they had to issue a statement saying that it wasn't because of of the movement, which basically tells you that it was because of the movement. So I, th- you know, I think that absolutely that the movement has enabled uh, a lot of these reforms to be able to take place. What do you think about the charge? We support protest. It's a shame when it gets out of hand, but there are some things like blocking traffic that turn people that are that are slitting your own throats and turning people against you. What do you think of that argument? Look, protest is meant to take us out of our comfort zones. Protest is meant to disrupt our daily lives. And if you're going to say, well, uh, you know, protest in the appropriate time, place, and manner, which is what universities are always trying to do, right? Then that's a perfect way for folks to be able to ignore exactly what it is that you're trying to bring attention. Or remember to. the trend of the the free speech zone. Yeah. Yes. This yeah. was the this yes. was the little pen that you could have your. Okay. Yes. So yes. as I look, and I want to get into the book in a little okay. more specificity, but there sure. are so many news events going on all yeah. around us. There was a shooting in Milwaukee, and to me, mm-hmm. from the information that came out, it seems different than a lot of the other ones we've talked about. And I look at that and I say, well, I understand the anger, I understand the impetus to question it, but for all the turmoil that was visited upon Milwaukee, the specifics of that case do not justify that turmoil. What do you say? What do you think? I say what the organizers from the Movement of Black Lives say, you know, which is that anymore, I think, as in the civil rights movement, there was like a debate over, should it be Rosa Parks or should it be somebody else? Yes. Right? About who's the best face to be able to right. carry this this forward. Well, I think that we're we're past that point now. Well, but my point there is I don't believe in the idea of the perfect victim and anyone who wants to argue that Mike Brown that day stole a cigarette or whatever doesn't matter, you know, right. didn't deserve to die. But there have been a couple of these protests where it seems to me, if you want to say police are over-policing neighborhoods, I buy that. If you want to say we have an out-of-control gun culture, I buy that. But in that very moment, there seemed to be a couple where a man with a gun turned and faced a police officer pretty clearly, didn't drop the weapon. And that's a tragedy, but that's a different kind of tragedy than the unarmed guy or the guy where, you know, maybe he had a gun near him, but there was no evidence he was actually going for it. Mm, I see what you're saying. No, I mean, even in that particular instance, it's what can happen in that moment to de-escalate the situation. 
I don't know all the particulars of this particular right. case. Okay, so I, I don't want to get into the particulars of the case. But here's what I saw going to Ferguson a year afterwards. I wasn't able to be there during the year of protests after Michael Brown was killed, but I went there for the anniversary. And what I saw there was that police were constantly escalating the situation. And then they were also allowing things to happen that would create situations as well. So what do I mean by that? Well, we went out, uh, me and a couple of other folks, to be journalists, to document um, what was happening. What we saw was that if we were on West Florissant at night, right, you've got a police line over here on Ferguson Avenue, and you've got people kind of gathered there trying to have conversation with the cops, and, and there's taunting going on and all this other kind of stuff. But some folks are like legitimately trying to engage um, with the police in that particular instance. At the same time, there are all the businesses on the left and the right side of the street, right? If you listen to the Ferguson organizers over the years, what they, what they always said was the cops would line up in the middle of the street and they would let looting happen. And I saw that with my own eyes. What I saw was, was that there were a couple of crews over by the beauty salon. One of them decided that they would break into the beauty salon and steal a flat screen TV. They're hauling this out. They get into sort of a tiff or a fight with each other, these two crews, and suddenly they're firing on each other. And the cops are kind of like, all right, well, we're just going to let this go, right? So everybody is running. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, the police are saying, get down, get down behind the cars, blah, 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 blah. And then they started taunting folks, the peaceful demonstrators there saying, oh, now you need us, mm-hmm. right? And you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in that particular scene that I just laid out. But it made me think, well, what is actually going on here? What are they actually policing here? And it felt to me like they were policing a narrative that everybody that's out there all day, every day, that they're one indistinguishable mass of folks who just want to get into it. You know, that's the narrative that they were policing. And I I mean, they were certainly doing a lot more policing um, of the narrative than they were doing of, of actual, you know, things that were supposed to be. Yeah. The police looked at the scene you set out and said, Oh, this confirms what we thought, but it actually doesn't. It's just that, that was their preconception. Right. Recently, after this bombing in Chelsea, I saw a lot of uh, tweets once they caught the alleged bomber. Oh, now you appreciate the police, just like you were saying. Mm. And to me, that is like saying, oh, I just went to Wells Fargo and I put in my ATM card and it gave me a hundred bucks. So how dare you criticize Wells Fargo for setting up these (laughs) bank accounts? Like once they do, the Derogor- Making these bad loans. Yes. Not bad loans, but like like violating fair lending laws (laughs) and redlining entire communities. Oh, now you like Wells Fargo. Right, now you like Wells Fargo. (laughs) Now that you need your money. And I think the proper (laughs) response to, oh, now you like us, isn't, well, you're just doing your job. And I think most reasonable people will acknowledge there's a lot of heroism that goes on with policing. The heroism can also be extended to how you police all neighborhoods and all communities and all situations. Well, and I think that the really interesting question that's being asked by a lot of movement activists at this particular point is, what are the police for? Mm-hmm. Why do we have policing? And can we even think about what it, would, what it might be, mean to abolish police and abolish prisons? That's a thought experiment that I think more of us should actually think about. My mom worked in the police department. I grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii. What did she do? Uh, she was in. She was an administrator. She wasn't. Mm-hmm. A, she wasn't on the on the. She wasn't on the beat or the street or anything like that. She was back office. The history of police in Hawaii is that these were the folks who defended the queen, 
Queen Liliuokalani um, from American colonists. And so there's a different picture that I grew up with in terms of the police, what they were there to do, uh, what their mission was within the community. I moved to California, and this is sort of the, the peak of the war on drugs. And there's a back alley behind our house and every weekend, you know, and there's, of course, there's a uh, crack selling going on in the neighborhood and that kind of thing. But every weekend there's cops beating folks who are suspected of selling drugs in this alley behind our house. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And I see my friends harassed, you know, I see my brother getting profiled. I see all of these different types of things happening. And it makes you think, it makes you wonder like what, was the situation what was the structure and the system that was set up to do this and when you dive back into the history of it it does take you back to uh, the question of regulating the movement of people of color in all kinds of different kinds of ways we have countenanced the militarization of the police over the years mm -hmm. before the republican race when it was certainly not seen that uh, donald trump would be a front runner this conversation was taking place among Republicans. You know, Rand Paul brought up demilitarization and a lot of people agreed with him. And then Trump came and this idea was obliterated. And I haven't heard any Republican raising that. It's really hard to build something, to build an idea, especially within a community where they think one way, Republicans, law and order. So it's really hard and it takes a lot of steps. And then anyone could come and just whip the tablecloth off the table and upset all the glasses in China. And I think the mil I think the media aids in that. Once Donald Trump comes along and just talks law and order, he runs away with the show. But it's so interesting that during this period in which crime is at record low levels across the country, sure, we've had an uptick in some cities in homicides this past year. But if you look across yeah. the board- But remember, an living... uptick from the lowest ever. Right, too, yeah. exactly. So so we're, we're talking about a period during which you know crime is at historic lows, and yet he's he's pushing this law and order type of right. of line. It, it reminds me that you know there was a sort of effort congressionally bipartisan to start looking at these types of questions uh, before the election season kind of started getting moving, and that seems to have stalled in its tracks. Yeah. Now. Do you think that demographics will be the real solution to many of these problems you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, so, I have this theory so that is I don't I have, destiny. Yeah, I have the this theory right? yeah. that while it's true that racial attitudes have been improving, I think the majority of that is that old racists are dying. Mm -hmm. This is my theory. Right. Yeah. And then there's also sort of a, a, a corollary theory that if we all sort of get together and have babies yeah that everything that all of this stuff will kind of go away yeah i haven't um, subscribed to the uh let's let's boink our way out of the problem <laughs> yeah but there's a real naivete to that as well yeah i mean what i worry about is that we're not if we don't kind of address these types of questions that my kids are going to be dealing with the same questions that their kids are going to be dealing with the same questions the the problem is is we get to 2042 the year that we become majority minority and what we see is that color and cast have converged in a way that makes like right now look like a Benetton ad. Uh, we don't want that. And, and I feel like if we can get out of that cycle of crisis and get to a point where we're actually addressing these root issues, then we got a fighting chance. Yeah. We gonna be all right. So by the way, it's an optimistic book. We're going to be all right. <laughs> Notes on race and resegregation by Jeff Chang. Thank you for stopping by, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. 
And now the spiel, the appointment of Linda McMahon to head the Small Business Administration garnered a lot of jokes, not great jokes. And you thought Mad Dog Mattis was the ultimate warrior. Talk of Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon engaging in a steel cage match, wondering if the Iron Sheik should be asked to take over the Iran deal. No, no, and not a terrible idea. But really, the Small Business Administration, the very name of the department starts off small and gets more boring after that. And pretending that the Small Business Administration is some revered institution, such that it could be sullied by the presence of Linda McMahon behind the fabled mahogany desk or possibly collapsible bridge table. I mean, who knows? It's the Small Business Administration, not exactly on the back of the 10. Oh, to think that Linda McMahon will be tasked with filling the gloried shoes of such greats as Wendell B. Barnes, who served as small business administrator from 1954 to 1959, or after him, Bernard L. Booten, Robert C. Moot, Mitchell P. Kobalinski, and A. Vernon Weaver. The A. Vernon Weaver? Well, at least A. A. Vernon Weaver. To say nothing of Charles Heatherly or Hector Barreto. Oh, yes. Hector Barreto, who, of course, went on to found Tributo a Mi Padre Tequila in honor of his father, Hector Barreto Sr. This is a guy who was in George Bush's cabinet or a quasi-cabinet position for five years. You think he brings that up on the floor of the tequila company? You know, when I was in the cabinet. What cabinet? No, I was in George Bush's cabinet. What does that mean? I was confirmed by the Senate. I had a cabinet-level position. Here, have some more tequila. So Linda McMahon, if confirmed, will not unduly influence the course of the Republic. But her appointment is in keeping with trends in the Trump cabinet. Linda McMahon, though spry and wily, and from parts unknown, is a documented 68-year-old. Now, if you look at the cabinet, and we should note that the SBA, like the UN ambassador and the EPA, those are what they call cabinet level positions. But if you look at the cabinet proper, here are the ages. Spring chicken Steve Mnuchin is 53. And then we go up. Mad Dog Mattis, 66. Jeff Sessions, 70. Wilbur Ross, 79. Though reads on a 77-year-old reading level. Andrew Puzder, 66. Dr. Price, 62, Dr. Carson, 65, Elaine Chow, 63, Betsy DeVos, 69, and John Kelly at Homeland, 66. Mike Pence is 57. That is shockingly young for a man of Mike Pence's age. Viggo Mortensen is older than Mike Pence, as is Belinda Carlisle of the Go-Go's and Susanna Hoffs of the Bengals. Mike Pence is younger then Roger Goodell and Lawrence Taylor, Mike Pence is younger than Flava Flav. Although, when you think about it, Flava Flav does really come across as an old guy. Always just babbling and babbling and then trailing off, wondering what time it is, calling grown-ups boy. But our last president, it needs to be noted, was 47 upon taking office. It is no wonder that Donald Trump has this emphasis on manufacturing jobs and factories as a key to the economy, being on the cover of Time magazine, that he references cyber, that he watches the evening news and gets mad about it. This is an old guy administration, and they are mostly men. There are four women, though. It should be noted that three of the four have husbands more powerful than they are. And also, another interesting demographic represented in the cabinet, three members of the cabinet have significantly enriched themselves due to the presence of women in bikinis. 
Trump with his pageants, Linda McMahon with the WWE's divas, you could Google them, and Andrew Puzder is the CEO of Carl's Jr. Headline, ad age, Carl's Jr. CEO is more than happy that sex sells. Mr. Puzder credits the infamous Paris Hilton car washing commercial with much of Carl Jr.'s brand awareness. And in case you haven't been paying attention, those commercials did not end there. The most American thick burger with a split hot dog and kettle cooked potato chips on a fresh baked bun. New at Carl's Jr. and Hardee's. This cabinet has been criticized as being heavy on generals. At least generals rise through a meritocracy. A few of the appointments seem to be an attempt to put the fiercest ideological warrior in the position to have the most impact. A few, Nikki Haley, Ben Carson, are an example of Trump tapping obviously talented people, but in areas in which they have little or no experience. It will be fascinating to see the impact that this disparate lot will have on the country. Fascinating like a nature documentary, or a reality show, or a train wreck. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube would like to honor William Ussery Jr., Gerald Ford's labor secretary. Just producer Mary Wilson celebrates William Ussery Jr.'s work with the Armstrong Cork Company, in which he co-founded Local Lodge 8. Now Local Lodge 918. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, notes that although sources mistakenly call him William, his birth name is Willie, although he was known as WJ, or often Bill. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, notes that William, sorry, Willie Ussery Jr. won the National Labor and Employment Relations Association Lifetime Achievement Award. The gist, we remember William Ussery Jr. for his involvement in a baseball strike. He didn't really solve it, but because the strike lingered, it drove Michael Jordan out of baseball. He came back, he dropped 55 on the Knicks, and made it clear that I would never see a sports championship in my lifetime as an adult. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. Give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life. He or she will receive all the benefits of membership, like ad-free podcasts, bonus podcast segments, and access to the Slate Academies. It's also another way to support Slate's independent journalism. Give Slate Plus today at slate.com slash give plus.